Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll explore the idea of appointing a new fiscal commission to find solutions uh, to our nation's long-term fiscal challenges. Our guest is Romina Bocha, Director of Budget and Entitlement Policy at the Cato Institute, where she specializes in federal spending, budget process, economic implications of rising debt, and Social Security and Medicare reform. Joining us for the conversation is Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and uh, Chief Economist Steve Robinson. So Romina, Tori, and Steve, welcome to Facing the Future. Romina, you wrote a a blog in August about the idea of a fiscal commission, and it got a lot of attention, including... um, uh, a column in the Washington Post by George Will. So we thought it would be a good idea to get you on the show and, and tell us a little bit about your idea. Uh, the blog was entitled A Fiscal Crisis Awaits. Here's a provocative idea for heading it off. Um, we'll dive into the details of that provocative idea in a minute. But if you don't mind first uh, preaching to the choir for a little bit, uh, why do you see a, a fiscal crisis awaiting The simple fact is that the United States has amassed unsustainable, unfunded obligations that are growing faster than the economy. As such, the real burden of government spending is growing faster than the ability of U.S. taxpayers to cover that burden. And the the real big issue is what's driving these unfunded obligations. We looked at the most recent financial report of the United States government that is put out annually by the Treasury recently and identified that 95% of the 75-year long-term unfunded obligation of about $80 trillion that uh, the Treasury identified in this most recent report, 95% of it is due to Medicare and Social Security unfunded obligations. And that's where it gets really tricky because members of Congress don't really know how to reform these vast, very popular, and for many people, essential programs. Um, They don't really have much experience with it. It's been a very long time that they even made slight tweaks and the changes that will be necessary now to address these unfunded obligations are of far greater magnitude than any changes that Congress has tackled previously. And we face this in an environment of increasing polarization, a lack of um, the ability to compromise and work together by members of Congress. And that coupled with the fact that our unfunded obligations are driven by entitlement programs uh, makes this problem even gnarlier. And it is a bigger problem now because the United States debt is approaching record levels that we haven't seen since World War II. Over the next five years, we're expected to exceed those record levels of 106% of the economy or gross domestic product. 
And over the next 30 years, the U.S. somehow is uh, planning to accumulate uh, over $100 trillion in additional uh, deficits. And that would be unprecedented. That would be um, about four times what the U.S. government has been able to borrow from credit markets over its entire existence, because publicly held debt is about $25 trillion. And we're looking at borrowing over a hundred trillion over the next thirty years. So I think it uh, raises the question as to who will be able and willing to lend the U.S. government this much money, and what will be the consequences of um, the markets having to provide that much higher interest rates, slower economic growth, and the potential for currency debasement if all else fails. So. I think that no matter how we look at the fiscal situation that we face, it's it's an ugly problem that um, um, is going to be very tricky and difficult to solve. Um, okay, I think you've got us convinced that there is a fiscal crisis and <laughs> pending <laughs> that that uh, for a number of reasons that uh, uh, could be coming up in the future. Um, so, what led you then to say? we need a commission. Why do you have to go outside the regular process? And and at this point, you don't need to get into the details. We'll dive into that. But just the idea of, you know, regular order isn't going to cut this. So we need to, to do a commission. What what led you to think about that? Yeah, I think this is um, the entitlement spending problem is um, highly unique and um very large political problem for Congress. And I, observing the political process and the failure of the budget process in recent years in particular, and also the deficit reduction deals that members of Congress have been able to strike in U.S. history, the the sheer magnitude of the entitlement spending problem and what it will take to resolve it um, makes me highly pessimistic about Congress's ability to address this problem without help from the outside. And by help, I think really the biggest help that they will need is political cover. Mm -hmm. um, we, we saw the president uh, put um, Republicans and also Democrats on the record during the State of the Union that they wouldn't uh, touch anyone's benefits. It's that type of rhetoric that moves us even further away from finding a compromise solution on these problems. I think it is also a particularly difficult problem because the entitlement programs are growing on autopilot. So even if members of Congress today decided if they could agree on not making things worse, like the spending problems already baked into the process. So they don't have to do actually anything and we are uh, heading towards a, a fiscal crisis. And that's because of decisions that were in many cases made decades ago by other members of Congress, some of whom are no longer with us, others who are no longer in office. And so you're asking current members of Congress to commit something akin to political suicide in order to clean up a mess that was left to them by their predecessors. I think that makes this a particularly tricky political problem because there's really no glory in cleaning up this mess. There's, it seems to be only political downside, which is why we don't see Congress tackling this head on. Tori. So in, uh, in terms of this uh, fiscal commission, uh, let, let's talk about some of the details. Who would you put on a 
fiscal commission. We we obviously have had fiscal commissions in the past. Some uh, were sort of a mixture of members and non-members, elected members. Um, there have been some commissions that were just experts. I mean, would you put uh, elected officials on there? Would you put think tank people on there? Would you prohibit lobbyists, for example? Um, who, in your mind, would be good candidates in general uh, to serve on this fiscal commission? I think we should avoid putting any members of Congress directly on the commission. I think members of Congress, especially the leadership in the House and Senate, perhaps also the leadership of the of the budget committees and the president should nominate commissioners and the Senate should um, should uh, confirm those commissioners so that you um, you you go through the process of ensuring that you have people that are um, focused on finding solutions to the problem. They're not um, particularly radical on either side or likely to uh, derail the process, but they will be they will follow the goals of the commission in good faith. And there's a high likelihood that they'll be able to work together with the other side and uh, come to a compromise solution. But I wouldn't put any members of Congress on it because I think the great benefit of a fiscal commission here would be to provide that political cover, to leave it to um, outside experts, not elected officials, because that is fundamentally the problem we're trying to overcome. I know for a very long time, um, us on the outside have been trying to get members of Congress to sort of hold hands and jump across the cliff together and make entitlement reform happen. But at this point, uh, we have tried this several times. We had the Simpson-Bowles Commission. We had the Super Committee. They all failed. I look at um, some more recent bills that have been introduced, like the Trust Act that would be staffed again with members of Congress. And I think it makes it more likely that the commission process will be derailed, whether it be by um, some members of Congress using the commission in order to elevate their own public profile, maybe throw their colleagues under the bus for recommendations that they make that might not be as um, popular with voters. The risk of putting elected officials that are primarily concerned with being reelected on such a commission, I think, is too high that uh, we should staff it with um, outside outside parties. And rather than putting strict guidelines as to who may be nominated, I think that uh, with the Senate confirmation process, we ensure that, um, uh, you know, someone who's considered to be a lobbyist that perhaps is, cannot be viewed as objective, et cetera, uh, wouldn't end up being confirmed. You're listening to Facing the Future. We're discussing the need for a new fiscal commission with Romina Bocha, Director of Budget and Entitlement Policy at the Cato Institute. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the need for a new fiscal commission with Romina Bocha. She's the Director of Budget and Entitlement Policy at the Cato Institute. Steve, let me bring you into the conversation. Yeah, thanks. So before the break, we were talking about um, who would be on the commission. And I just want to raise sort of two related issues. So as you know, there are what are known as public trustees who sit on the Social Security and Medicare Board of Trustees. 
One is supposed to be a Republican, one's supposed to be a Democrat. Those positions have been vacant, I think, since 2015 was the last uh, public trustees whose term expired. So, you know, obviously, there's a concern if you create this and require the Congress to appoint the commissioners, they might never get, or the president and the Congress to appoint them, they might never appoint them. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, given that, and also I, another interesting thing in uh, looking back through history, the 1983 Greenspan Commission, which was created to, 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 uh, to address social security issues, um, that commission was appointed by President Reagan, Speaker Tip O'Neill, who's a Democrat, and Senate Majority Leader Baker, who's a Republican. And the legislation, or actually it was an executive order that created that commission, allowed each of those members to appoint the president and the speaker in the house and the majority leader in the Senate, they appointed members, but they were required among their picks to appoint someone from the other party. So, you know, the question I would raise here is, should you set up a structure where someone other than Congress appoints the commission? I mean, if they don't want to do this, I guess there's two issues. One, if they really don't want mm -hmm. to do it, they might never pass the legislation, but they could pass the legislation and never appoint the commissioners. So that's one problem. And then the other question would be, if they're going to appoint commissioners, should they perhaps be required to appoint people from opposing views? So they're trying to balance it out a little more. Steve, I really like that idea about appointing members from the other political party or folks who are considered to be on the other side. Um, but yeah, in terms of if Congress passes a bill to establish this commission, I think that um, that is a really strong sign that Congress is serious about tackling this problem, but also recognizes the political limitations that they as members of Congress directly face. I think that um, it could look very bad for Congress if they passed a bill to establish a commission and then didn't follow up by appointing any members. Um, but in all in all cases where um, you know our representatives are hopefully acting in their constituents' best interest, it's still up to the constituents to hold members of con Congress accountable to that. Um, so. That's 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 kind of that's we always have this 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 problem that if if Congress doesn't want to do something then how do we get them to do it I think we have to persuade them uh, by persuading their constituents and the members themselves and their staff um, and some of what will persuade them I think in this case will be a more sluggish economy that continues to drag out high inflation that uh, the Federal Reserve could use some help to get under control. And um, and the sheer magnitude of the unfunded obligations that Congress is confronting. And um, unless you have your head stuck in the sand, um, I think we can all recognize that we have a significant uh, fiscal problem that we need to resolve sooner rather than later. And we also have some deadlines that Congress will confront over the next 10 years pertaining to the Medicare and Social Security trust funds. So uh, Congress won't get around not doing anything. They'll have to do something. And I think that this commission idea, especially a BRAC-like fiscal commission, to stabilize the debt, to uh, stop the un, uh, unsustainable growth in the debt and stabilize it at a at a at a at a, at a level that is um, healthier, that is less um, 
damaging for the economy that uh that there will be pressure on congress and there will be legislative deadlines that uh that will help uh put this into motion yeah so uh, so maybe maybe a compromise would be include in the legislation maybe three members that would be named in the legislation appointed by congress they wouldn't necessarily be members of congress but they would be three people and then those three people would then appoint the rest of the commission. So Congress could get the ball rolling by including a selection committee in the legislation. And then once they pass the legislation, the selection committee would then appoint the rest of the members of the commission. Um, you've mentioned a couple of times the BRAC-like commission. So let's let's review what BRAC was and uh, why you refer to that as a, as a model. Yeah. So BRAC stands for Base Realignment and Closure Commission and was a process that uh, Congress set in motion um, after the end of the Cold War when it became increasingly difficult to close obsolete military bases using standard procedure in Congress. Um, members of Congress ended up banding together to protect each other's bases from being closed. Uh, in response to constituent pressures, and it ended up uh, with the government wasting money on military bases that were no longer necessary, and that money then was not available for the Department of Defense to prioritize other needs and capabilities. And that recognition ultimately led to the formation of the Base Realignment and Closure Commission, which was also um, appointed by the president uh, with uh, under uh, after consideration with leadership in the House and Senate. And they were also independent external members, experts, not members of Congress that were staffing the commission. So I think that's a key part that we would want to model this fiscal commission after. But what BRAC also had that was so unique is that um, it provided political cover to Congress by not even requiring an up or down vote on the list of bases that would be closed. Instead, um, if the, only the president had an up or down vote on the list of bases that the commission recommended would be closed, and if the president agreed with the commission, then Congress could just um, sit on uh, their hands and the commission proposal would go into effect. They had the option of rejecting the commission proposal uh, with a joint resolution of disapproval, but they did not have to take an affirmative vote. And th I think this is very controversial when we talk about um, something as substantive as making potentially major revenue and spending changes to some of the largest federal government programs that is far greater uh, impact and scope than the BRAC Commission was um, was tasked with, but we also face a much bigger problem than uh, the closure of obsolete military bases, namely um, avoiding a U.S. fiscal crisis that uh, that could send the economy into serious turmoil and um, has the potential to undermine our um, the U.S. status as the world's reserve currency. So this is a bigger problem. Therefore, um, the solution will also be will also be bigger and require more courage. I think BRAC is a really um, promising model because it 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 helped Congress to do something they know they should do. They 
they wanted and needed to get done, but could have found it politically difficult to do. Again, this um, this requires that there's some there's recognition in Congress about the magnitude and severity of the U.S. fiscal crisis that's currently brewing, and um, an interest and willingness to avert that fiscal crisis and address that problem. That's always the basis uh, that that we work from before establishing this commission. But if Congress understands the magnitude and severity of the problem we're facing, then I think um, putting establishing a commission like this um, gives them an effective lever to do what otherwise they're politically unable to do. Tori, we got about a minute and a half left in this segment. You want to set up with a question? I'm not just, I don't know if I would ask a question, but I'm certainly going to editorialize for a second. Okay. <laughs> I get no, I just I get really sick and tired of these members who who you know Romina makes a good point. You know, this could be pro- politically unpopular with with some members because you are delegating so much authority to an unelected body to make significant changes in in our our revenue and 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 uh, entitlement laws. But my opinion is every doggone member of Congress who sits in a seat right now, the first thing they said when stumping for election was, "Elect me." I'm a leader. Send me to Washington. I'm a leader. I'm a leader. Well, this is a time. I mean, this is like one of the most important times where we need leaders to stand up and say to the American public, we we're in deep doo doo. (laughs) We've made some bad decisions in the past and we need to fix those bad decisions. And we've also got some demographic changes that we knew existed for a long time. And they're changing the way you know, the costs of these programs uh, affect our federal budget. We've got to make changes. And if you're not going to lead, then doggone it, get out of the way of people who will. And that's where I think a commission like what Romina's proposing here, a BRAC commission, uh, has a place. So to all those other members that go, I'm thumbing my noses at them. My nose. You're, You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We're discussing the need for a new fiscal commission with Romina Bocha, Director of Budget and Entitlement Policy at the Cato Institute. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the need for a new fiscal fiscal commission with uh, Romina Bocha, Director of Budget and Entitlement Policy at the Cato Institute. Uh, you know, we've been talking about a uh, the, the need for a commission in a, a BRAC-like, uh, something where you would have uh, a package of options approved by experts and sent to Congress for an up or down vote or implementation if there's no vote uh, to, to disapprove. One of the questions that uh, that I had is what do you think is it important for the commission to have a specific target, something that they're tasked to accomplish with their recommendations? And what do you think might be a, a good uh, target for them? Yes, I do believe that uh, Congress should give the commission a very clear, attainable and specific target. Uh, But beyond that, members of Congress should leave it up to the commissioners to determine how to achieve that target. For example, in the past, we've seen legislative texts where uh, one party or the other would try to constrain the commissioners by saying, for example, you may only consider spending reductions, but no revenue increases or the opposite. And that 
that I think is a recipe for failure. I don't think that would even uh, even pass. But uh, a clear and um, attainable target, I think, would be um, to to stabilize the debt at a certain percentage of GDP. And I think it is very much attainable to stabilize debt at 100% of GDP over the next 10 years. But I think that is insufficient for several reasons. Um, I think a better target would be to stabilize debt below 80% of GDP over the next 30 years, because many of the changes that the commissioners might consider to Social Security and Medicare, including uh, changes to the eligibility ages for these programs, um, changes to how benefits will be calculated in the future. Uh, there will be a phase-in period. I think that we can all acknowledge that if, if people have been promised a certain health and um, retirement benefits, uh, and then you, you change them substantial ways uh, where they don't really have time to adapt to those changes that is much more harmful than uh, than the necessary especially if you act earlier rather than later and to avoid such uh, sudden deep changes in um in what benefit levels people can expect, I think uh, the commissioners would likely consider those implications and trying to adopt the pro uh, a pro approach of doing less harm. And that could mean that many of those changes would be phased in, would phase in over a period of 5, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, where if you have a goal of stabilizing the debt at 100% of GDP over 10 years, you, you are not looking beyond that horizon. And so you're missing uh, some of the most important changes that need to be made. So a 30-year horizon is better than a 10-year horizon. Um, the reason I picked 80% of GDP uh, for for long-term debt sustainability is that um, a, a, my colleague Jack Salmon did a, a, a very good literature review of where at, at what threshold levels debt starts significantly impacting economic growth negatively. And for industrialized countries, of course, it differs by country and economic conditions, but it's read roughly 80% of uh, GDP debt starts to drag down growth. So we should aim to stay below that target. Um, I've also been, um, been following other proposals like the Trust Act, and um, I think the goal of long-term uh, solvency for Medicare and Social Security, and in the case of the Trust Act, also the Highway Trust Fund, is also a very good approach. So perhaps the, um, the first goal that the commissioner should achieve is stabilizing debt at below 80% of GDP over 30 years, adopting that long-term target. And for changes to Medicare and Social Security, um, I think it would be wise to adopt a target of long-term solvency. And um, those two targets of stabilizing debt as a percentage of GDP and attaining long-term solvency for Medicare and Social Security um, will have to go hand in hand and can be accomplished together. I looked at the uh, just um, and that, uh, I, that that issue of uh, stabilizing the debt to GDP ratio at 100 percent back in the fall. I looked at how much it would cost to do that and use the CBO has an interactive device that you can play with the numbers. And you had to cut spending or raise revenue or some combination of both by $7 trillion. 
then you get another trillion dollars or so from interest savings, and that would be enough under that May baseline to stabilize the debt to GDP ratio. Now, it's a little bit uh, lower now because the Fiscal Responsibility Act shaved a little bit off that, that 10-year number, but uh, it's still like six trillion or so. That's that's a pretty steep goal. Have you have you thought about whether that's really feasible? Absolutely. I looked at uh, a number of ways that you could measure this. One way is to say, uh, how much is this in terms of total spending over the next decade? How much will we actually have to shave off? And it came out uh, using the May baseline to about five percent of projected spending including interest. And um, I think that's absolutely reasonable and attainable for Congress to achieve that because it's it's not 5% reducing spending by 5% what we spend now, but projected spending. So the totality of spending of the next 10 years, which includes a lot of spending growth. So another way of looking at it is to say how much of projected new spending, so the additional spending that Congress is uh, planning to do over this period of time um, would this require? And um, using the May baseline, it was about 18 trillion in additional spending that um, um, that uh, uh, and you would cut that in in roughly half, less than half. And so that's then we're talking about slowing the growth in 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 spending rather than cutting actual spending and i think that should be this should be very much attainable and at a minimum what we should expect for congress to accomplish steve you want to jump in <clears throat> yeah so go, going back just a second and defining the goal of the commission one of the issues that you raised in your blog post was this what's called the non-delegation doctrine um, so it, when you when you think about what BRAC did, essentially we created a commission and their job was to pick which bases get closed. Whereas here, we're going to appoint a commission and their job is, as you suggest, to stabilize the debt to GDP ratio or to you know set some goal. But in order to do that, they're not going to just produce a list of bases to close. They're going to have to essentially change tax law and Social Security and Medicare. And so the question is, you know, the the, the, or the argument is the Constitution gives the, the legislative authority to Congress and Congress can delegate that in some cases. But I guess the question here is, are, you know, is Congress delegating too much of its authority to this commission? And when their commission produces a proposal and it's going to get challenged in court, what, what are your thoughts about, you know, how specific you have to be in order to avoid the question of the non-delegation doctrine and, and do you run a risk that the commission's, you know, their proposal goes into force and somebody challenges it in court? I mean, what, what, what's your thought? Yeah, I've looked into this and it's well within Congress's discretion to ask for help um, and to delegate um, its work to an outside commission, but they have to task that commission with, very clear and specific goals. Like Congress cannot just appoint a commission and say, you now take over all of our work. <laughs> so it has to be more specific than that. And Congress still has to have the final say, which is where with a BRAC-like commission, where the proposals would go into effect by default in Congress without members having to take an up or down vote, uh, the way that you address that issue is by ensuring that members of Congress have sufficient time 
to reject the proposal, that they still have that ability to um, reject the proposal. And uh, that way they ha they haven't really delegated um, that much of their authority. They've asked the commission for help, but they're still in charge of whether the commission proposals actually um, go into effect. Um, it, it, it is not, uh, Congress is not required to use the least discretion to accomplish its mission. So um, empowering a commission is very much within uh, Congress's uh, discretion, as long as those criteria are met, that the commission has very uh, clear goals that Congress has set. So the commission exists to support Congress in accomplishing a goal that Congress has agreed to, and that uh, Congress retains the ability to uh, reject the commission proposal. They do not have to take an up or down vote. I think another way of looking at this, because I heard this criticism uh, quite a few times that isn't this an abdication, abdication of Congress's responsibilities. And my response to that is that Congress abdicated its spending responsibilities a long time ago when it put in place programs uh, that would grow on autopilot without uh, a congressional reconsideration, without the requirement for Congress to agree to additional spending. And uh, many of these programs, especially in the case of Medicare and Medicaid, when they were adopted, the um, the 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 estimates that Congress had for what these programs would cost in the long run turned out to be um, very, very wrong and in underestimating significantly the implications of putting um, these programs into place. And, you're, uh, uh, you're listening. We're going to take a break here, but uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. We're discussing the need for a new fiscal commission with Romina Bocha, Director of Budget and Entitlement Policy at the Cato Institute. And we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the need for a new fiscal commission with Romina Bocha, Director of Budget and Entitlement Policy at the Cato Institute. Uh, Tori, you want to jump in with a question? Sure. First, I just want to say I want to give a big endorsement to this idea. I really love the way Romina is thinking here. I love the idea of a Brack-style commission of subject matter experts rather than politicians. Um I, I love the idea that, you know, everything should be on the table. I love the idea of having interim and long-term goals uh, for, for the commission. Um, so that leads me next to, okay, we finally got a product. Our commission has produced something and it's now time for Congress to vote on a resolution of disapproval if they so choose. Let's suppose they choose. Um, in a prior life, I was a Senate creature, uh, which means I'm, I, I'm all about procedure. How do we get something across the line? So in your mind, as you've designed this, this Brack style commission, and we're now at the stage of a resolution of disapproval, which I assume would originate in the House and then go to the Senate and I'm wondering what are the vote thresholds in your mind? I mean, like right now, we all know that uh, a simple majority uh, can get something through the House. But in the Senate, under certain circumstances, you know, vote levels are different. Sometimes it takes a majority vote, simple majority. Sometimes it takes a super majority. So what are your thoughts about procedurally how this resolution of disapproval, which is we're not agreeing, we're saying, hey, we don't agree, 
And obviously, if they don't get enough votes to say they don't agree, the president signs it becomes law. So it gives every it, it absolves everybody from the mm-hmm. quote, sins of making tough choices. So what are your thoughts on procedure? Yeah, I think we should follow regular procedure in the Senate. Uh, but I, 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 I leave some of these uh, details intentionally open-ended and vague because what I think is more important is for members of Congress to have that discussion to determine what they are able to sign off on. Uh, because I, I recognize that empowering a fiscal commission with such broad powers uh, might uh, be very uncomfortable for certain members of Congress. So what kind of uh, design, what procedural design can members of Congress ultimately agree on, I think is more important than necessarily what I think about it. But I don't think it should be, um, I, I wouldn't have, Ideally, we would fast track. Uh, we wouldn't fast track the. Uh, we would we would want to fast track an up and down vote if we required Congress to take that. But in this case, I don't think that that is wise. That would likely lead to the commission's uh, proposal failing. Uh, but with a joint resolution of disapproval, the beautiful thing is that members of Congress have the option of taking a stance for their constituents of complaining about uh, details in the commission proposal that they may not agree with. And they can even try to rally support by other members of Congress. But if Congress decides to um, establish such a commission, they've signaled very strongly that they are serious about getting help to resolve the U.S. fiscal problem. And unless the commissioners came up with an outrageous proposal that most members of Congress could agree should not go through, um, the most likely result, I think, would be uh, a reasonable proposal that um, people can disagree with details on, but overall can get behind the broader goal of stabilizing the debt, avoiding a, a fiscal crisis, and ensuring that essential programs like Medicare and Social Security are solvent and fairer for current and future generations. And with that in mind, I think it would be very difficult to get um, to get over whatever threshold is. I could see Congress playing games, like if it was a uh, a 60 vote threshold that you might get, you know, 58 senators mm-hmm. uh, to reject it. And, you know, some of them will get to take those free votes to basically say, I disagree with this. Um, but if Congress is serious about getting this through, whether you have a simple majority or uh, a larger threshold they have to cross, then um, I think they will figure out a way not to uh, not to get to that point. What's the role of the president in all of this? I mean, could the... Mm-hmm. President uh, veto uh, yes. this? This Yes. In many ways, Congress is empowering the president to take that up or down vote. But um, the president is more likely to have considerations of the broader nation in mind and what's best for the country rather than particular constituents in, in uh, you know, the, the district of a, of a member of Congress. Um, so the president would take an up or down vote uh, before the commission proposal would even go to Congress. So that that, that was a threshold that um, BRAC, the Base Realignment and Closure Commission, had to cross. If the president disagreed with the BRAC uh, uh, recommendations, then uh, they could go back to the drawing board. And the president also had to explain what he disagreed with. And I think we should use a similar process here. Um, and... Uh, 
Uh, but if the president agreed, then it would go to Congress and would be adopted by default as long as Congress didn't reject the proposal. Um, after after uh, that period passes for bracket was 45 days in Congress, and then the uh, proposal was uh, began to be implemented. Um, the, the president didn't have to sign anything into law anymore because he did that at the front end. You know, so there would be no reason to veto the proposal because it would go through the president's office first. Um, in our remaining five minutes or so, uh, I, while you're here, I, I wanted to get your take on one other issue, which is uh, the appropriations process. Congress is coming back and the uh, and they need to pass a whole lot of appropriation bills, all of them, in fact, before September 30th or the government shuts down. So focus is uh, turned to a continuing resolution, which would keep things going in uh, at one you know, last year's level with maybe a few uh, exceptions thrown in. Uh, so negotiations are probably going to engage soon on on that. W what is your take? All, all of Washington is now, you know, making bets about is there going to be a shutdown? Is there going to be a continuing resolution? And if so, until when and with what conditions and uh, what, what's your what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I don't think I have a, a non-obvious or novel hot take. I think that we'll see business as usual, which unfortunately involves a continuing resolution, usually until mid-December, because we, you know, um, Republicans will want to take a stance against an, an omnibus, a Christmas tree bill. That's that's a big uh, signaling opportunity for them. But then, just like last year, we ended up with that omnibus at the very end of the year before the Christmas holiday um, after all. And so I think we'll see this two-stage process play out again, most likely. We'll go into mid-December and then while well, we still couldn't quite agree, so we'll need to push it out a little further. I think it's highly unlikely that we'll see a government shutdown because of the pending election. It just doesn't make anyone uh, look good. Um, but I also think that the Fiscal Responsibility Act, the outcomes of that debt limit bill are a very strong indicator that we need something like a BRAC-like fiscal commission to address the growth in the U.S. debt and the unsustainable um, entitlement promises that Congress has made. Because the uh, Fiscal Responsibility Act is uh, it, not even just modest in, in many in many ways, it it uh, um, it just shows how far Congress is from being able to agree to uh, a broader fiscal plan. It only tackled a discretionary spending, and even there, there were um, there were the levels that Congress agreed on and shared with their constituents for what they've accomplished. And then there were side deals and emergency spending plus ups that we're now observing, where even the modest deficit reduction that uh, Congress seemingly agreed to in the debt limit increase uh, will unlikely is unlikely to come to fruition, at least not uh, to the full extent. And so um, it's also this tinkering around the edges and bickering with the appropriations process while the larger fiscal problems go completely neglected and unaddressed um, that I think is very indicative of the failure of Congress to um, address our fiscal challenges without support and political cover, which a BRAC-like fiscal commission can provide. Steve and uh, Tori, final minute, shutdown or no shutdown? What's your early uh, guess? 
I, I say no shutdown. I think uh, between Hurricane uh, Adelia and uh, the Ukrainians breaking through uh, a key point on the Russian front uh, means that there's definitely broad support for, you know, some emergency uh, appropriations, which guarantees a CR. Steve? Yeah, I, I think it's unlikely that they get a shutdown. I guess the question, though, is what kind of deal does Speaker McCarthy have to cut to avoid a shutdown and what kind of blowback he's going to get from the, the you know, the right wing of, of the Republican Party? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to take the I'm going to take the moderator's uh, uh, prerogative to duck the question. So I'll come <laughs> back. To, <laughs> I'll come back to it later. But I think that even if we get over the uh, the hurdle uh, in September, I think we got we're going to have to be asking these questions again in December. But mm-hmm. that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, I'm your host, Bob Bixby. You're listening to Facing the Future. We've been discussing the need for a new fiscal commission with Romina Bocha, Director of Budget and Entitlement Policy at the Cato Institute. I want to thank uh, Steve and Tori for their insights on this subject. Uh, join us again next week when I'll be back with another edition of Facing the Future. Facing the Future.